I think that maybe at this point there's not going to be much question in our minds as to why in the church at large today the idea of covenant is not particularly well received. Amen. Because we've been trained in greed. We've been accustomed and acculturated to this culture of release that says that boundaries are always a bad thing. So the idea of covenant and commitment and restraint and order and form is, uh, has been, that the face of the devil has been painted on it, that it's the problem. This restriction that says you can't eat of any tree you want, but only the tree of life and these, all these other trees, but you may not eat of this tree, that's somebody out to get you. That's the evil father, amen, who's just jealous. Thank you, Jesus. So a covenant, a good definition of covenant would be a relationship that is under sanctions. It has boundaries, it has definition, amen. It has form. And if the most important relationship that we can have by which we attain salvation, a relationship with God, if that's the most important relationship, then it is critically important that we understand what are those boundaries and what is that form. <clears throat> God is a jealous God. He doesn't believe in cohabitation. Think of all that we've been talking about, about knowing God is eternal life. What we talked about yesterday about receiving with meekness the implanted word that is able to save your soul. I have known Abraham in order that he would command his children. All this, these, this intimate relationship with God that he desires and by which we are saved. God has determined that it's only going to take place within one form. So we want to have both, don't we? We want to, we want to have the, the Lord and, and the advantages of the kingdom, especially our salvation. Nobody wants to be lost. Nobody wants to be damned. But we also want to have the pleasures of the world. We want the pleasures of sin. And the lie is that you can have both, that there is not an exclusivity between the two. Amen. They can be mixed. Adultery. What does James say? Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, he who wants to be a friend of the world, amen, makes himself an enemy of God, amen. We've read before, but for Romans 7, that if you marry another while you're still in relationship with the first husband, your first master, your natural master, your natural man, you commit adultery. There's, got, there's, a, there's an exclusiveness to this covenant. Amen. <clears throat> so there's a, there's a necessity for form for a certain kind of relationship. That's what we're saying. That there, there are some relationships that can only unfold into what God intends them to be within a certain form. And our relationship with him is that way. We take from the scriptures the example of an earthly marriage as a type and a shadow between the, mar the, the marriage between Christ and the church. Amen. Our covenant relationship with God. The form is what allows for the content. 
If you have no glass, what are you going to pour the water into? We want to drink. Amen. But what is going to hold the content of that relationship if there is no form? If you have the form with no content, you have nothing. Amen. We don't want a dead form. We're not looking for just some kind of arbitrary structure that has no love in it, that has no actual relationship. That would be like the, um, uh, the fraudulent marriage that we discussed the other day, where we think that it's, the marriage is some kind of piece of paper that gets us privileges, but there's nothing actually filling it. Amen? But neither can we have the content without the form. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, it is not your love that sustains marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. You see what he's saying? He's saying that the form given by God of the marriage, which is a covenant relationship, is the form that will allow love to live on. Just the opposite of the approach the world takes to marriage today, isn't it? Well, let's just see. See how long the love lasts. And by that, we'll gauge whether or not we want to stay married. Amen? Well, guess what happens when you approach it that way? The love doesn't last very long. But if we, if we understand that marriage is a form given by God for the perpetuation and expansion of his kingdom on the earth, like is said in many traditional weddings, amen, then we understand that if we would do it God's way, the love also would continue because it would be sustained by the form that God himself designed for it. Amen. So covenant is what is, de is defining the form, it's defining the boundaries. It's drawing the boundary lines. To the flesh, we look at those walls, the walls of covenant, and the flesh says, this is constraining me. This is binding me up. This, I'm losing my freedom to play the field and do what I want to. I'm limited. Amen. But there's something else that's going on with those walls. Those walls are, are protective for the spirit for the, for the fragile thing that God is doing amongst his people and in our hearts, those walls form the protection that keeps outside the temple all those abominations, amen, that are in the world around us, amen. So if we're in the flesh, it can be viewed as restrictive, it can be viewed as a negative thing, but if, if our hearts are centered in what is happening in the spirit, it becomes a positive, wonderful thing that actually creates the only environment that love can live in. The scriptures uh, speak about this in terms of, the, we've, we've already talked about this a little bit, but I'll read a couple other ones we haven't gone over, that were spoken of as the planting of the Lord, the garden of the Lord's agricultural terms are, are very often employed to indicate the kind of relationship that the Lord is desiring to have with us, with his people. In Isaiah 60 and 18, it says, Violence shall no longer be heard in your land, neither wasting nor destruction within your borders. But you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. Amen. If, we, if you break down the walls, we're going to lose the salvation of God. Those walls are saving his people. They are preserving and perpetuating the kingdom of God on the earth. 
Song of Solomon, and a couple of times he refers to his bride, his spouse, as a garden enclosed, as a spring that is shut up and a fountain that is sealed. Amen. A garden enclosed by boundaries and by walls. In Isaiah 5, he tells about what happens when this is lost. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and he cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst, in its midst and he also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? Now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. What's the judgment here? I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste, it shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Amen. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. There's activity that's supposed to be taking place in this garden. Amen. And the walls are around it in order to allow that to take place. How do we differentiate between this soil that God has access to, where this relationship can be active, where we can be being pruned and watered and cultivated and fertilized and fed? Amen. Well, that's what covenant is all about. John 15, 1, Jesus said, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser, or the word can be translated the gardener or the farmer, or the husbandman. Amen. Revelation 2 and 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The word paradise takes its root from the word garden. Amen. So we're we're here, that's the two trees again, isn't it? So inside of this garden, is where the tree of life is, not the tree of knowledge of good and evil we've been talking about. Thank you, Jesus. So the new covenant, I've actually heard of believers who think that covenant is not a New Testament term. That's convenient, isn't it? It's it's not scriptural, but it's convenient. Uh, Covenant is Old Testament. That has to do with the law and boundaries and such, but the New Testament is about freedom. Amen. So they actually think that covenant is, that we, know, we know of believers who won't even do vows at a wedding ceremony because covenant is Old Testament concept. I think you and I know that that doesn't agree with scriptures, not to mention that the New Testament can be translated new covenant. That's what it means. Amen. So, yes, it has changed in form in some ways, but unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Amen. These all were not made perfect because God had reserved something better for us. 
Amen. But it was to be the fulfillment, as we've been talking about, of the types and shadows. Amen. So we know we've been speaking all week, really. I won't read them again about the scriptures about Ephesians 5, about the church, husbands and wives, what happens in the, in the context of that covenant, the washing of the water of the word that happens in the context of this marriage relationship. But I'm speaking about Christ and the church, he says. This context of unity, they'll come together and be one flesh, will be members of his body. That's all taking place within this context of covenant. Romans 7, I mentioned before. Let me read you this one. Second Corinthians 11. <coughs> this is Paul speaking. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. This is the exclusivity of covenant. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And he goes on to speak about a different gospel. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. So if we take this marriage relationship as a, as a, matter, as, as a pattern, the commitment is total, right? The exclusivity is complete. The commitment is total. The terms are forever. What are the consequences of breaking a covenant like this? We read about them in Hebrews 10. I won't read it to you, but about what happens to those who treat the blood of the covenant as a common thing, as a profane thing. Amen. We're going to lose everything if we lose our covenant with God. Amen. In the Bible, the, the, a word used for covenant making in the Old Testament was berit. We talked about it before. It's, it's used for, for circumcision. It means to cut the covenant. Amen. <clears throat> and we know that in the New Testament, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not of the letter. And you know Colossians 2. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Amen. So baptism is explicitly equated with the covenant of circumcision. It was mentioned before that in, in Old Testament Israel, this cutting of the covenant, it indicated that those who would be part of the people of God had to go through this covenant, had to cut this covenant, this this commitment to cut off the flesh, amen, was the only way to be part of the, the people of God. And anybody who would refuse to enter into the covenant of circumcision, it said, then he shall be cut off from the people of God. The flesh is going to be cut off one way or another. We're either going to choose to enter into the kind of commitment that we are going to lay down our lives, amen, no man takes my life from me, but I choose to lay it down, or the Lord is going to, the judgment of God is going to come against us in the end that is going to cut us off from the life and from the tree 
of, of life. Amen. We're going to be put out of the garden. Amen. <clears throat> and of course, we know we've already discussed in our discussion of baptism also the 1 Peter 3.21. That what saves us is not the washing of the water of the filth of the flesh, but it is the pledge, or Luther said, the covenant of a good conscience before God. So I think covenant is in the New Testament. Amen. And we want to talk to today about another word that is used for covenant keeping in, in the Old Testament. It's the word hesed in Hebrew. And this word means it indicates the continuing faithfulness to the covenant, that it doesn't end on the marriage day. Amen. But now we're going to walk out the content of the vow, the pledge, the commitment that we have made to God, and that this also is a necessity. Amen. So that our marriage is not just some legal matter, but that it has real love in it. <clears throat> One of the clearest examples in the Bible of Chesed comes from the story that we see of Ruth and Boaz. Now we know where Ruth is coming from. Ruth was a woman of Moab. She wasn't part of the covenanted people of God. Naomi was a Jew and who had moved to Moab because of famine. And there, Ruth marries one of her sons, but her son dies. And so when Naomi hears that there is again bread in, in Bethlehem, uh, that she says she's going to go back. And yet there's something... There's something about this Ruth that has caught sight of something. Even though she's been part of a different culture, something about her has caught sight of something, apparently, in her relationship with Naomi and presumably with her former husband as well. Amen? And the thing is, is that the, the, the Moabites as a people had been cursed by God because they had refused to offer assistance to the children of Israel when they were coming through. They had been cursed by God, and, and he had said that in Deuteronomy 23 that, that any descendant of Moab was not allowed to enter the congregation of Israel. So that's the context that we have of, what, what, of Ruth's choice that she made. And yet when Naomi goes to go back, she urges Ruth to stay behind. She tells her, I don't have a future for you. Amen. I don't have anything left to offer you. I don't have any more sons to give you. Why don't you stay here in the culture that you're accustomed to? And yet Ruth has caught sight of something. And so we know what she says. Her sister is willing to stay behind. You know, even though she feels a lot about Naomi, nonetheless, you know, you can only do what you can do. You know, you can't change everything about your life. But Ruth feels something different. Ruth feels some kind of draw and some kind of personal connection with Naomi that ends up serving as a bridge to a much bigger purpose in God that she could have presumably had no idea was going to unfold. Amen? So something ignites in her heart about what she feels in this relationship with, this, with her mother-in-law. That she feels like she can't just pursue her own life and do, be what she wants to be. Somehow she feels a connection here with, with Naomi that she doesn't want to lose. 
And so she makes her, her pledge there that we all are familiar with. Amen. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I'm going to live. Amen. Wherever you die, I want to be buried. Don't leave my bones in Egypt <laughs> like Joseph. Amen. For your people are my people and your God is my God. Amen. What is this? This is a renunciation of her identity. This is a renunciation of who she is, where she comes from, what her life looks like, what she stands for, of her past, of what her future could have been. This is a decision to bind herself in a covenant relationship. She said, may God do so to, and more to me also if anything but death separates me from you. Amen. Do you remember what we talked about in, in, in baptism? That what saves us through the covenant of baptism is the renunciation of our old identity, of who we are apart from God and a cursed people cut off with no future. Amen. And the only way into the congregation of Israel, the only way into the house of God, because we're, we're cursed. Amen. We've been cut off. The only way back into the garden is a renunciation of all of who we once were and a covenant commitment to God and to his people. Your God shall be my God and your people shall be my people. Amen. And this provides the door, the context, the way to salvation. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. <clears throat> One of the points here is that Ruth's commitment to an individual relationship was very important. Our flesh does not like to get specific about relationships. We like to say, ah, oh, yes, a covenant with the Lord. That sounds good. Me and Jesus. I want to always be with Jesus. That sounds fine. I'll make a promise to that effect. Amen. But a covenant to specific relationships, is that necessary? Is that necessary? Or is that just an optional thing that, um, you know, that's, that's just an enhancement. That's one of the perks that comes along with being a Christian is, you know, the main thing is me and Jesus, but there's other neat people that you, you know, you bump into here and there along your journey to be everything you can be, everything you want to be, you know, as you pursue your career and whatnot. And, you know, the Lord's going to understand we got a job transplant. So, I mean, we're going to move, but I'm sure there'll be a good church there and uh, we'll find some more neat people to fellow travelers. Amen. That's not the attitude we see here in Ruth, is it? Would that attitude have produced the line of David from which the Messiah came? Amen. David would have never been if it weren't for this woman. Amen. If it weren't for this attitude that recognized that, yes, I must be joined to Israel's God, but the pathway to this is going to get real specific. 
It's going to have to do with the, the given relationships in my life. Given meaning given by God of his choosing. The body that he has composed just as he wills so that the members cannot say to one another, I have no need of you, but a place where all the members belong to one another. Amen? It doesn't just say that we belong to God. It says that the members belong to one another. I guess Romans 12, I believe. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. So that's an important thing that we, we see in this story of Ruth. The specific relationship was the path of connection to everything that God was doing and that he wanted to do even through her life. It was a privilege. It was a provision to join her to the promise of God through the ages that she could be part of it. Amen. <clears throat> Boaz recognized that Ruth was a person of chesed, faithful covenant keeping. When he saw this woman and, and he asked about her and what, what, who is this that is coming and, and he's told about she's here serving Naomi. Just this simple gleaning in the fields. This, this wasn't a really self-glorifying job that she's doing, trying to just bring, to take care of her aging mother-in-law. Isn't it incredible to think that sometimes the purpose of the ages can be tied up in trying to take care of your aging mother-in-law? Amen. That's how personal it is. That's how interested God is in relationships of care between his, the members of his body. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. And Boaz sees this. He sh shows something about his character also, doesn't it? That this is what impacts him. Is that he sees this Gentile woman that, that really he knows should be cut off from the congregation. And he sees this and he wonders, he marvels at it when he hears. And he says, he talks about, he said, this, this, this chesed that you showed is greater even than that that you showed at first. And he marvels at what he sees in her life. Amen. And of course, what, you know what happens is that when, when Naomi hears about what Boaz has said and whatnot, she instructs Ruth of what she's supposed to do, that she could join herself to, to Boaz. And, you know, I think sometimes people like to romanticize this story like it was a, some kind of romance that happened and such. But think about what's happening on both parts. Ruth is doing all of this at the instruction of her mother-in-law and such. You know, she's left everything behind to enter this relationship of service. And Boaz, on the other hand... He makes the choice to marry this Gentile woman. This, there's nothing in this for him that builds up his self-esteem here. Do you see? Amen. So when she comes to him, according to Naomi's instruction, she asks Boaz to spread the corner of his robe over her. She pulls the corner of his, his robe over her, and, she, and then she then, when he wakes up and sees what happened, she asks her to do this. Now, this was, in biblical terms, in that culture, this spreading of the, of the robe indicated a marriage covenant. It was saying, I want to come under your covering. Amen? <clears throat> the word there is kanaf. It can be translated as robe. It's also translated as wing. You can kind of see the corner of a robe, you know. It's there's something that covers there. And Boaz says to Ruth, May Yahweh repay your work, and a full reward be given to you by Yahweh God of Israel, under whose wings, it's the same word, under whose wings you have come 
for refuge, safe place inside the covenant. Amen. The Psalms speak often about the refuge that is underneath the shadow of his wing. Amen. But it's a, it's a, it's a uh, expression that was used to indicate a marriage, a marriage of God. So the place of refuge is in the marriage covenant with God. In the ark, over the ark of the covenant were what? The wings, the covering wings of God over the ark of the covenant. Amen. Ezekiel 16, 8, this is Yahweh speaking to Jerusalem, his city. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you, Kanaf, and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine. You belong to God, says the Lord God. Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood, and I anointed you with oil. What does this make you think of? Drawing the connections there? Amen. This covenant with God, this marriage with God, the washing in the water, amen, and the anointing of the oil. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. <clears throat> Thank you, Jesus. So it's an exclusive relationship. Does an exclusive relationship with God and with his people, does that mean that we can't have relationship with people outside the body? I don't think so. But it does define that there's a difference. Amen. There's a difference in the access that we allow into our hearts. Amen. The Bible speaks of the fruit that can hang over the wall. Amen. There can be fruit from the garden that we share even with others that hangs over the wall. But we should never lose sight of the distinction between the two. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. The word hesed that's translated covenant, faithful covenant keeping, can also be translated as mercy. Can I ask you why you think that might be? Why would faithfulness to the covenant be translated as mercy? It's for our protection. Amen. Think about how it applies in your life. Think about your relationships. If somebody is unfaithful to you, what does it bring into your life? Pain, trial, heartache, disappointment, loss. Amen. But if you know you can lean on someone, if you know you can trust that this is till death do us part, if you know that this is for better and for worse, and you can trust in that faithful covenant keeping with your spouse or your brothers and sisters, amen, that's a mercy. That's a strong tower, a place of refuge, a place of love. It's a place that gives us confidence that we can let down our own walls of self-protection. 
Amen? In the world, we learn pretty quickly, don't we, that you can't bear your soul too much or people are going to take advantage of you. People are fair-weather friends. They'll use you up. They're, they're, they're happy to be in relationship with you as long as they get something out of it. But as soon as you become a liability or a problem or you have a need, they're going to laugh at you. We'll be done with that relationship. But if you can enter into relationships where we know that that's not going to happen, where love can cover a multitude of sins, amen, then we feel the freedom to be vulnerable. We feel like there can be a safe place for me to open my heart, that I can even invite the access of the gardener, of the husbandman into my life to prune and to cultivate and to dig and plow in my heart because I know that this is long-term. We're in this until we see the harvest of righteousness and peace that comes from the discipline. This is for our good. He disciplines us for our good. You see what I'm talking about? This, this, kind of, this is the form of relationship that allows us to open our heart and have the kind of relationship that would otherwise be impossible. It would be impossible. A marriage, I, 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 honestly, I feel sorry for people who don't feel this kind of confidence in their earthly marriage. Amen? We meet them, don't we? We meet people who they don't feel this kind of confidence even though they have a marriage of sorts. They don't feel this way. And I, I feel like they don't even have any idea what marriage is to me because they've never felt like they could allow themselves to be that vulnerable and to go that deep with anybody. Amen. But within the context of the covenant, the form that God has given in his design, we can go there. We can stop defending ourselves and protecting ourselves, and we can trust the gardener. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Covenant forms a sanctuary from fear. Thank you, Jesus. It's just like a family. Amen. You're raising kids. Those kids, if the family's what it's supposed to be, they feel like that family is a safe place where they can learn. You know, it's hard to even learn if you feel like that this is just a peer group where you're fumbling efforts to try to grow and, and, and be part of what God is doing. People are just going to take shots at them. Amen. But if this is the family of God, then it's a place to grow. It's a place to learn. It's a place where we can feel the freedom in Christ. Freedom in Christ comes within the walls of covenant. There is freedom. But it's freedom from our flesh, freedom from ourselves, freedom to step into the realm of the Spirit, freedom to lose control to God, to let our hearts come out to the surface so that God can change us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. <coughs> Thank you, Jesus. 
How are we going to keep this covenant? I would suggest that there are two basic ways that we can break this covenant. One is obvious. We can just give up, give in, and say, I can't do this anymore. Amen. This is too binding on my flesh. For whatever reason, we'll, we, well, there's a hundred thousand ways to, to justify it, rationalize it, whatever. It usually has to do with this, that we've bought this victim lie. You know, that's, that's usually the dynamic that's coming in there that causes people to just say, I can't handle this anymore and, and break it explicitly and run. I think we all know that's not what we're supposed to do. Amen. But there's another way we can break it. Amen. And that's through neglect. Beware lest you neglect so great a salvation. Just by not giving ourselves to the daily sacrifice that maintains the eternal flame on the altar of God. Neglecting to continue to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice wholly and completely to God. We're going to lose sight of it. We're no longer going to know His will. We're no longer going to see where we're going. We're going to start to lose why this was important and what it means and why we're here. And Amen. Just because we did not daily fulfill our vows, fulfill our vows. It's not, the vows are not a duty that we got over it with. Amen. At one point in time, it's something that we walk in. Amen. So we've got to give attention to it, lest we, as Hebrew says, lest we drift away. Amen. So despise not the day of small things, of caring for your mother-in-law. There are so many ways in which we walk in active faithfulness to the covenant of God, in all those specific relationships. And as we maintain all of that, the life of God continues to be manifest in us. Amen? Thank you, Jesus. Those who are living for Jesus, we're always carrying about in our flesh the dying of the Lord Jesus, Paul says, that the life of God may be manifest through our mortal flesh. Amen? We're always being delivered over to death for Christ's sake. So he says, so, so death is working in us, but life in you. All things are for your sakes, Paul says. And it goes back and forth as all the members are serving one another in all those ways, small and great. Amen? It keeps the relationship alive. You imagine this in a marriage relationship. Amen? If we just neglect it, don't pay attention to it, too busy over here and that and the other. Oh, yeah. Always on vacation, always at work, and always this and that. You'll lose it. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. <clears throat> Is our covenant with God something that can be done in, in vague, general, abstract terms? Amen. There's a reason why when we make a marriage covenant that we spell it out. How long it's going to last, what the terms of it are, Ruth even put in what was going to happen if we break it. All those things are always present, present in a covenant. How much of that do we need? Brother Ossie mentioned the other day that there really are different levels of covenant, aren't there? If a covenant is thought of as, as, an, as an agreement of some kind, you know, there's a lot of things that are done on a handshake. 
Amen? There's a lot of things where it's even just kind of understood. We could say in one sense that there's kind of a covenant with, say, your neighbors, even if they're people in the world or whatever, the people that, that live next door. There's kind of an understanding, usually, even if it's unspoken, that you're going to, you know, be neighborly and I'm going to be neighborly and, and such. So there, there can be levels like that that are even unspoken. Amen. But I, I want to suggest that the value that we place on the relationship is going to correlate, it's going to correspond to how clear and how specific and how definitive that covenant is going to need to be. Because it is the covenant that guards that relationship. So if the relationship is kind of come and go, then it doesn't have to get so specific. But if this is something that means everything, if this is something that means salvation, how much should we value it? Amen? Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Amen? So where we, where we really are rooted and live, as we've been talking about this whole symposium, is gonna be, it's going to be manifest in the, the actions and decisions that we actually make. So what's, what's wrong with the picture where nobody would ever consider a big financial transaction without clear written terms, you know, that we make sure that both parties sign to and such. Nobody would ever consider some financial transaction where something was at risk without clear terms where everybody knows what this means and what happens if we break it and so on and so forth and that there's real commitment. You put your name to this thing. What's wrong with a culture where that would be very important to do, but your covenant with God or, or with his people or even the covenant of marriage for that matter is kind of a, um, well, let's see how it goes. Amen? It's kind of general. We're part of the body, but it's the mystical body of Christ. It's the universal body of Christ. I'm a, I, how, how are you joined to God? I'm through all of his people everywhere on earth. It's a, it's a, isn't it wonderful how broad it is, <laughs> how general and how vague it is? It leaves me a lot of room to kind of define it how I want to in my own head while maintaining the illusion that, yes, I'm joined to God in some mystical sense. Do you want to be in a mystical heaven or a real heaven? Amen? <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. He wants us joined in clear, concrete ways that can be defined, that are committed to in a specific way. And that's why we, when we talked about baptism, we talked about that this is so important that this covenant is, is enacted through a demonstrative vow, through spoken words of explicit commitment to the lordship of our heavenly husband, amen, and through, through his feet on earth, which express his dominion on the earth, amen, to the head and the feet. When we marry Christ, do, do we just marry the head of your spouse? <laughs> no. We marry the whole body of Christ. And the church, which is all the fullness of Christ, who is all the fullness of God. Amen. The bodily form of God. We can't separate the two. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I just think of this. In Romans 6, this is immediately preceding Romans 7, which talks about 
you know, that you got to die to the former husband and be married to the new husband. Right before this, he's talking about being slaves to one master or the other. The world tells us, you know, the, and, and the, the new gospel that is being preached in the churches today tells us that um, the two choices are bondage and slavery and freedom. Freedom from any constraint, from any bondage, from any limits. Those are the two choices presented to us in the world. But that's, that's not the two choices that Paul presents us in Romans 6, is it? He presents us with two kinds of bondage and two kinds of freedom that are mutually exclusive. So that's what he's talking about here. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. We expect him to say that form of doctrine or that form of teaching that was delivered to you. Oh, just tell me about the instructions and, and I'll obey them in my way. But that's, he speaks in just the opposite terms. He says, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, or the word can be committed. You were placed into a form of doctrine. What is that form? Is it not the body of Christ, the new and living way through the veil, which is his flesh or his body? We enter into the Holy of Holies. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. There is a form into which we have been committed, entrusted. Thank you, Jesus. It all, it's all relevant there, but you know, I trust that you know the context. Thank you, Jesus. <clears throat> so this confession, this commitment, has to be as explicit as the demonstrative vow of baptism, and it has to be walked out in a context that's as real as the context of Ruth's vow to Naomi. Real relationships. John says that if we do not, how can, that if we say that we love God, whom we have not seen, and we do not love the brothers that we can see, not, not, not the yes, I believe there are brothers everywhere. Amen, there are. But this has got to get more specific than that. There's got to be a local, tangible expression of this body that we come into contact with and become joined and connected with according to the will of God, not our choice. Attend the church of your choice. No, <laughs> attend the church of his choice. Amen. So he says that if we claim to love God who we cannot see and we do not love the brothers that we can see, we are a liar. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. In the Old Testament, covenants would get so explicit that they would sign their names. In Nehemiah 9, when they committed that they were going to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, it says that they made a covenant and all the leaders of the people affixed their names to it as a seal. Amen. They committed themselves to the work of restoration that was going on there. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So when do we make this covenant?
When is the time for it? Thank you, Jesus. Is it not today when you hear his voice? Amen. When is it time to get married? Well, if you've never met her, it's probably not time to get married yet. <laughs> if you don't love her, it's not time to get married yet. If you haven't counted the cost as to what that covenant is going to mean and what it's going to what's going to require of you, then it's not time to get married yet. Amen. But if you have and if you see it and if you feel it, amen, then the time is now. Amen. And there may be there'll be yes in in one sense there's a consideration of others and such just like we set our wedding date in consideration of those are kind of, but there can be at least an engagement. Amen. A commitment to get committed, <laughs> amen, where we say yes to the Lord. We see what he is proposing to us, that he is offering us the opportunity to be joined to him, amen, to be part of his covenanted people. And we see that proposal, amen, and we become betrothed to Christ. We say yes, Lord, amen. Let me enter into a course of, of engagement and preparation Amen, so that I can understand exactly what it means and exactly how it's going to work and I'm going to know where we're going to live and what house is going to look like. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. I'm committed to get committed. Amen. And then we, we set that wedding date and from there, no turning back. Amen. Join with God into a form where love and relationship can flourish. Amen. Where fear can be banished. Amen. And we can be one with God, one with his people. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. What a privilege it is that God would invite us. Amen. That he would invite us into this relationship where it's not only we who make that commitment to him, but that he makes it to us as we spoke of the other day. Amen. That this is, this is both parties. Amen. And God is saying, I want to love you as a husband. I've already done my part. I've already given the sacrifice. I've already done all of it. And I desire for all of that to belong to you. I want to help you. Amen. But he knows that that help can only come in one form. So it's also love for him to withhold himself until we submit to the form that he's given. Amen. Because otherwise we'd get the wrong impression. We'd think that a, a live-in arrangement was going to work. Amen. But he's teaching us that his way is the way to life.